0: Looks like surgery really is best for epilepsy.
1: Robotic surgery for cancer.
0: What do firearm sales adjacent to California have to do with firearm-related injury and death in California?
1: And health and wealth in the U.S. and England. That's
0: what we're talking about this week on PodMed, the weekly look at the medical headlines from Johns Hopkins, posted on October 27, 2017. I'm Elizabeth Tracy.
1: And I'm Rick Lang, Professor of Medicine at Johns Hopkins, President of Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso, and Dean of the Paul L. Foster School of Medicine.
0: Rick, we need to advise our listeners that today is actually the last day that we're going to be recording PodMed. And it's just shy of 14 years of recording. It's been a huge privilege and a wonderful undertaking. I've been proud and pleased to be a part of it. And I'm saddened to say that it's time for us to go.
1: And I too am sad about that, Elizabeth. We've recorded for 14 years continuously. I think we missed one recording over that time, recording around the world. So it has been delightful to bring the latest health and scientific news to our listeners over those 14 consistent years.
0: And we'd like to thank everyone for their loyal listenership, and we wish you all the best going forward. So this is our last recording of PodMed. So let's turn to the studies. Why don't we turn first to the New England Journal of Medicine, a look at epilepsy, looking at whether surgery or medications can be used to manage the condition.
1: This ends up being a particular issue for children that have epilepsy that is resistant to medications. They've tried multiple medications, and despite that, they continue to have seizures. In this single-center trial, they took 116 patients 18 years of age or younger and had drug-resistant epilepsy and randomized them to surgery. Some had it within a month and some more than a year later, so they were able to compare those groups. And What they found is that surgery was effective in eliminating seizures in 77% of the kids with drug-resistant epilepsy, where those that continued for drug for the year, only 7% had resolution of their epileptic seizures.
0: What are the constraints with regard to employing surgery? Because it sure sounds to me like it might be best just to go straight to that.
1: Well, there are some complications associated with it. And it depends upon where the focus of the seizure is and what type of surgery, because not a single surgery, there are multiple different types of surgery, some of them with a higher risk of complications as well. So if the child can be controlled with medications, that's the most effective way.
0: Hmm. So tell me just a little more about some of the long-term sequela of surgery.
1: Well, the major long terms of quality of surgery would be hemiparesis. If a child ends up with paresis or inability to move part of their body, and that occurred in 26% of these individuals. Now, that improves over the course of time. Oftentimes, a child is able to recover some of that function, but it's usually not normal. Conversely, for people that have drug-resistant epilepsy, if they continue on drugs, they also have the risk of falls. It can result in burns and fractures.
0: Hmm. What would be your advice then for parents who have a child who does not seem to be controlled by drugs?
1: Well, if they are truly drug-resistant, I think they need to be referred to a center that has expertise with surgery. That will allow them to, first of all, identify where they believe the focus is to recommend particular surgery and to discuss with the parents what the risks and benefits of those surgery are. But that's clearly an option for these kids that have drug-resistant epilepsy, especially those that have frequent seizures.
0: Okay. Let's go from here to the Journal of the American Medical Association, also related to surgery. Increasingly, of course, robots are being used to assist or even perform the majority of an operation. And what are the outcomes relative to that? We're treating a couple studies together here.
1: And these two studies looked at the role of robotic surgery in place of laparoscopic surgery in people that have cancer, either rectal cancer or kidney cancer. Let me remind our listeners is that the old time-honored type of surgery is called a laparotomy. That involves a single large incision, could be anywhere from 3 to 12 inches long, and that's been replaced by laparoscopic surgery small multiple incisions using specialized equipment. And that laparoscopic surgery, by the way, is shown to be just as effective in many cases as the larger incisions, but there's less complications, there's quicker recovery time and a shorter hospitalization. Well, if you do that same laparoscopic surgery with a robot, that's called robotically assisted surgery. And a lot of surgeries now are being performed that way. And the question is, is it really that much better than laparoscopic surgery? And so in these two studies, one that looked at people that had colon cancer randomized either laparoscopic or robotic surgery, what they discovered is they were able to complete the procedure in an equivalent number of patients with the same results. And by the way, the complication rate looked about the same. The difference was the robotic surgery took about 40 minutes longer, cost about an extra $1,200. Very similar result with people that have kidney cancer, and they remove the kidney either laparoscopically or robotically. The results were the same. It's just that the robotic surgery was more likely to to take a longer period of time. And it was about $2,700 more expensive than laparoscopic surgery. And why is this important to our listeners? Because many of them think that robotic surgery is an advancement over laparoscopic surgery. And it appears really not to be an advancement. It appears to have the same results. It just takes longer and costs more.
0: Do you think that this is an outcome that's going to change as people become more accustomed to using robots and that would reduce the amount of time it takes? And then also economies of scale with regard to the instruments going down in price and the need to recover that?
1: I don't think it's going to get any faster, Elizabeth. It just takes an obligate amount of of more time, and that's across all the types of surgeries. These are people that are experienced during the procedure. And it will only become less expensive if they lower the cost of the equipment. And that's in the hands of a few robotic manufacturers. So it's not just buying the robot itself, but it's all the equipment and the upkeep as well. They may find themselves priced out of the market. As hospitals and insurers assume the cost, they may say, we're not gonna do that because the outcomes are no better.
0: Okay, let's turn from here to Annals of Internal Medicine, our final two studies for this week. One of them, I served it up with that really long promo about what do firearm sales in Nevada teach us about firearm injury and death in California.
1: This was, I thought, a really interesting study and attempted to show whether gun shows are associated with short-term increase in firearm injuries and whether that differs by state. Interestingly enough, they looked at Californians that could either buy their guns at gun shows in Nevada or California, and those gun shows have very different restrictions. It's a very heavily regulated industry in California and not so much in Nevada. And what they discovered was in the subsequent two weeks after gun shows, in guns that were purchased by Californians in Nevada, there was an increase, in fact, in gun-related injuries, where in California, there was no increase. That suggests that it's not just gun shows itself, but the regulation of the gun shows and how well they're monitored that may contribute to or prevent some of the local firearm related injuries.
0: Okay, so what's the remedy?
1: First of all, I want to remind our listeners we have about 86,000 gun-related injuries and 36,000 deaths annually related to guns in the United States. Very few of those are related to gun shows, but when we do have them, if we have proper regulation, it appears that minimizes the risk that those guns will be used in the short term to result in injury, whether intentional or unintentional. And I'm not sure we want to leave this to the states because every state can adopt different rules. I think some federal oversight would be helpful. I'll take it a step further. This is an important thing for the CDC to be able to study. And Unfortunately, Congress in 1996 restricted any monies from going to these types of studies. I think it's like burying your head in the sand like an ostrich. We can't ignore the data. We have to act upon it. The only way we can act upon it is to get it and to do proper studies.
0: Okay. And then finally, something I thought was really a little bit disconcerting that health and wealth, those are inextricably linked, and it is irrespective of access to health care.
1: In fact, we oftentimes talk about health and income. But When people retire, they frequently don't have any income, but they have accumulated wealth. So the better way to examine the relationship in the older individuals is to look at not health and income, but health and wealth. These investigators did that both in the United States and in England. The presumption being is in England, you have national health healthcare throughout your entire life, you think there'd be less disparity between health and wealth. Well, the first thing they discovered is, both in England and the United States, if you looked at the most wealthy and the least wealthy individuals, there was huge disparities, as much as 200-fold difference in terms of how much wealth was accumulated. But when they looked at health and wealth between the wealthiest and the least wealthy, those in the least wealthy, they had three times the mortality and three times the disability as well. And it was clearly related to wealth both in England and the United States. That suggests that access to care alone is probably not the only issue.
0: What are the other factors? I'm going to suggest things like education.
1: Education does make a difference. Chronic illness makes a condition. So if you start to treat it later in life, for example, in the United States, people are on Medicare at age 65. But if they have chronic disease for 20 or 30 years waiting to age 65 to treat it, I think we probably missed the boat. And in fact, in England, the medical care steps up at age 65 as well. This study looked at individuals a decade younger than 65, and those health wealth disparities were already there. So I think we need to target this in a much earlier age.
0: Right, and screening and intervention. I guess it's going to be hard to draw that relationship between those things and long-term outcomes and reductions, actually, in cost to the healthcare care system as a result.
1: Right. Obviously, if you're healthier initially, you have better savings, lower health care in the future. Furthermore, the disparities were greatest between those that were lowest and those were in the second quintile. So just moving the wealth needle just a little bit makes a huge difference. That's where we need to concentrate our efforts.
0: Okay, On that note, this is the final one, our final recording for PodMed. We wish you all the best.
1: It's been a pleasure recording with you. Y'all live well.